Welcome to the Jacques Marchais Museum of Tibetan Arts podcast series. In this podcast, we will conclude our discussion with Meg Ventrudo about the museum's 2018 guided trip through the country of Bhutan. Once Meg and I finish her impressions of the tour, stick around for a little bonus. They are the largest recipient of foreign aid, but they're also the largest decliner of foreign aid. So if you were the American government and said, we want to give you money for strip mining the mountains, no. they could turn around, they'll turn around and say, no, thank you. Our mountains are, are um, more important to us because of the carbon negative. So like Japan is building a lot of bridges for them over rivers and mountains because Japan, it's just something they've done for other Buddhist countries. And so they'll work with the Japanese on some infrastructure. Hmm. Um, but they're basically saying like our needs are, and, and you know, it's funny, there was a Jesuit who the third king met in Dharamsala. And he said to this Jesuit, because the Jesuits, of course, you know, everywhere with schools, said, I want you to bring this school to Bhutan, but you cannot convert the people to Catholicism. And the Jesuit went along with them and said, okay, and I guess, you know, but they also, like, haven't, like, the Jesuits haven't gone in and really overhauled the educational system. Like, you know, there's no, there's no branch of Harvard over there. You know, like, the colleges are still, like, their colleges. So they haven't, you know, it's it's just very interesting, like, what's, you know, what's happening there. And there mm. are a lot of, they're called CSOs, not NGOs, but there's a lot of CSOs that are working over there because now they're trying to, um, and healthcare is free, but it's not great. So they're trying to improve their healthcare system, but also with modernization comes obesity and diabetes and things that they never had to deal with before because they're, they were, you know, working on the farms and, you know, and when the boys moved to a city, they, you know, marry a village girl who might not be as, you know, savvy as they are. She has no job in the city. She's home eating, watching television, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's like what, you know, they're just having to deal with these kind of, you know. So there is a, a consciousness of, yeah, you know, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I think they're trying to get it before it becomes, mm. uh, you know, uh, 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 epidemic. So mm. yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating. Going back to the Bhutanese Rinpoche, we had the opportunity to see him while we were in Bhutan. So when he had come to New York, I had hosted him for dinner at, at my house and now going to Bhutan I was able to go to his house mm. and so we were in his uh, shrine room as well and, and they uh, served us tea and cookies and fruit and we had a wonderful conversation with him and then he did some mantra for us and gave everybody a blessing and had taken some photographs with our whole group and so it was great to sort of experience that interaction and have our, you know, he was asking our impressions of Bhutan, and we were having good conversation with him. Interesting. I mean, and so much just seems like 
being that it was a very small country geographically. Um, it's a small country, but it's not... It's not easy to get around. In fact, it was an hour flight to fly to Bumtang, which is where we started and kind of worked our way back. But when our bus driver met us there with the bus, he it took him 14 hours to drive the bus from Paro to mm. to Bumtang. So uh, he he we had flown into to Paro and then flew and met and met him there, and then he he drove us back. So the roads are are not are not that great. We walked through a lot of like farm villages where people had a home and probably had, you know, an acre or two of, of their own farmland. Mm. And then in Paro, there was a part of the city that was built um, all apartments and a complete grid system. So it was relatively new. So it still had the design of some Bhutanese houses, but they were maybe six or eight story apartment buildings oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and those were either those were probably rental yeah. properties where people were paying for rent our tour guide our Bhutanese guide did tell us that rents were pretty low compared to the United States because electricity was subsidized by the government so mm. the average homeowner is not paying an electric bill the way right. Americans are, are paying and electric bill. And you saw a lot of solar panels. We saw a lot of solar. Um, in the village where we had the, the home visit, we walked past their their temple, and of course right next to the temple was their village satellite dish. So they were getting um, communications. You did see some, some folks with, with cell phones. And then our last day there, we did the hike to Tiger's Nest. Which is the monastery that's built on the on the side of a cliff, and that was a three hour hike up and a two hour hike down. And who's there? Um, so Tiger's Nest is the monastery called Taksang, where um, Padmasambhava flew on a tigress to this mountain monastery, and the We've all seen the uh, yes the graphics. Uh, right. The monastery, though, had suffered a fire in the late nineties, and it was actually rebuilt. Late nineteen nineties. Yeah, late nineteen nineties. Was it? Uh, um, uh, it was struck by lightning. Oh my god! And yeah. it, because it was wood, it, it went on fire, and so huh. it was. And and what's interesting, you know, from a museum point of view, if a statue is old, you'll clean it, you'll care for it, but you would never repaint it. But in Bhutan, um, to repaint the face of a statue to make it look new is perfectly acceptable. Mm. It's an act of devotion for that statue to, to you know, so, so you'll see like a repainted, which, you know, you would never see that in, in a museum. Right. So the, the temples inside Tiger's Nest were actually, some objects were saved. There was a caretaker there who tried to save some objects, and unfortunately he had died in the fire. Uh, but then there was a uh, new, they, were, they recreated the inside of the, of the temples. So um, it, was, it was really a, a great a great hike and really interesting place to go. And that's the only way to get there. Yeah. There there are 
ponies that go about halfway up, um, but our guide suggested we don't take the ponies. Um, he said the ponies are a little skittish, and if you're not a good rider, oh. they know that. And yeah. so he felt, you know, and of course, most, you know, the journey is is half the experience or or all the experience because you would, you know, you'd walk up this this mountain, and then of course, you know, just kind of turn around and, you know, see the view and see the monastery, and it was it was great. And on the way up, there were these tiny rooms, meditation cells. And of course, you know the museum has meditation cells. In the but they were in mountain? kind of in the mountain. As mm-hmm. you got closer to, to Taxang, they were in mm-hmm. the in the mountain, and you'd walk by and you would hear the monks inside yeah. chanting, chanting, saying their mantras, playing a a, a tingsha or or a damaral, and so you, you know, and you couldn't see what was going on, but you could just hear it, and you could just you know, and of course they were, you know, the outside world of all the hikers walking by didn't mean, you know, didn't, didn't mean anything to them. No, and, no, and, no, you no. know, you can only imagine how long it's they like were, the birds. Yeah. You know, how long they were in there for, was it a three month retreat? Was it a year retreat? Was it a three year retreat? A lifetime. You know, you'd have no idea. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so that was, that was really great. Our, um, our two guides were very, very knowledgeable. I mean, they really knew a lot and, I think when you travel with the museum, one of the things is we do provide these sort of off the beaten track experiences for for our, our, our travelers and, and you know our guides just really, as I said, they knew quite a bit. And when we were coming down the mountain, there was a spot on the mountain that had a historic marker and our Bhutanese guide said, Oh, that's where the the previous Jake Kempo was born in that cave and you know, how, how else would you know that if you didn't have a, a Bhutanese guide yeah. guide with you telling you those things? So it was really, really fantastic. Born in a cave. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. So that was the, the big highlight, the end. The end. Well, I, you know, every day was a highlight. There was always something. So it seems. <laughs> there was always something. But I mean, that's yeah. where, you know, Tibet uh, and, yeah. you know. The inspiration seems to come. Yeah, no, it was it was really just a fantastic, fantastic trip. And I think one of the things that was also so impressive was how old the temples were. Hmm. And I mean, we went into a temple that was a seventh-century temple. Yeah. You know, and, and also how they would just sort of be in these farm villages. I mean, one point we walked through a cow field to get to. Uh, a temple, and and then you know you just walk in and you're amazed at at what you're seeing, hmm. um, and I think that that just speaks to and the, it's still maintained. Yeah, totally yeah. maintained. But I think that shows the devotion of the community. And the first temple that we went to was actually quite important too. We arrived and we couldn't go inside because the king's grandmother and aunts were there because it was the rainy day festival that's what it was it was the rainy day festival and the king's aunt and grandmother were there and we saw them being carried in on uh palaquins the current the current king's grandma and her sister and so um so we couldn't go in the temple but we were able to walk through the the grounds and they had these prayer wheels that were bigger than people and had these sort of rails on them that you could push them to spin them but that was the temple that Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche went to. And Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche was a very learned 
Buddhist master who was a teacher to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And so when the Dalai Lama was forced to flee Tibet in 1959 and went to India, Dilgo Kyanse Rinpoche also fled and he went to Bhutan. Um, he had more freedom of travel, so um, Dilgo Kyanse was able to visit with His Holiness in Dharamsala, but His Holiness Dalai Lama, I don't think, ever was able to go to, to Bhutan um, mm. just because of the proximity of Bhutan to China and him not wanting to cause any political or diplomatic Right, because uh, then, issues. yeah, that yeah. puts Bhutan right. on the line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, travel is very important to Bhutan, and you have to go in on their, go in and out on their airline, Druk Air, which is the royal airline of Bhutan. The airline has a fleet of four airplanes. Um, and flying out of Bhutan... Um, and actually flying in, you fly right in through the Himalaya mountains. And so as you come in, you fly right through the, the Himalayas. And as you leave and look out the window of the plane, you can see Mount Everest from the, from the plane. And so your, your last, you know, your last view of Bhutan are these magical mountains. Lost horizon. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> under, under, over the clouds, the, the clouds are under the, the mountains. And so it is... Um, it, it, it's just a, a magical, magical place. Yeah. I, just, I, I said to my mother one day, I was, you know, emailing her and I just wrote, I'm like, it's like Brigadoon. Like these villages just like the clouds just kind of come up. The mountains are there and you look out and you see this village start to, to come to life. And, you know, you hate to be like, oh, it's Shangri-La. But, you know, like in a way, the, the natural beauty is Shangri-La. One of the first trips organized by the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art was to Asia in 2013. This is where the museum's voyagers got their first taste of Bhutan. Here are some impressions of that early trip from current board member Peg Harrington. Bhutan was part of the Jacques Marche Museum's first trip to Asia in 2013. The first week was Tibet, and we had 12 people there, and half of that group, six, went to Bhutan at the end of the Tibet trip. We actually had to fly to Nepal in order to be able to fly into Bhutan. So we left Lhasa, flew to uh, Kathmandu and spent the evening, uh, uh, the day actually, in Kathmandu. The guide that we had suggested that we sit on the left-hand side of the plane going into Bhutan because we'd have the greatest view there. When we arrived at the airport in Kathmandu, we asked to sit on the left side and the person said that the plane had already been ticketed. Our seats were all on the right side. I handed her the card of our guide who had said to give it to her and a gentleman came over and he reseated us so that we all got to sit on the left-hand side of the plane so we could see the gorgeous view of the Himalayas on a clear bright sunny day with blue sky and we were able to fly parallel to uh, Everest and K2 and see the whole um, set of Himalayas above the clouds. It was a beautiful introduction to Bhutan. 
when we got to Rimpong Dungzong, it was in Paro, it was outside the town. It looked like a castle. It was a newly built five-star hotel, which again was a wonderful way to begin Bhutan. And we were met at the gates by a group of dancers. And we waited while we were welcomed in a ceremony that included both male and female dancers and um, flowers for behind our ears. Uh, the place was lovely at all sorts of services, and we were able to relax after our very hectic trip through Tibet. What we discovered as we walked around outside is that there was a roadway being constructed by Indian workers. The Bhutanese government had made an, a, um, an arrangement with the Indian government for Indian construction workers to come in and build Highway 66 across Bhutan from the East Gate, Paro, all the way to the west side. There were no roads when we were there in 13 that were big highways that went across the whole country. We saw families building the road right outside this uh, major hotel and across uh, the western side of Bhutan while we were there. A whole group of people had been uh, invited in by the Bhutanese government. I believe when the group went back in 2018, the road was completed and they were on the big highway. We also went from Paro to Timpu overland by bus and, and saw many things along the way, small villages, uh, people selling things along the road, uh, vegetables and flowers. And then we saw monasteries and uh, small uh, religious places as well as museums. In fact, the, um, it was interesting that during the time we were there, it was uh, right before the first elected government was coming into place. The old king, who has since uh, resigned his position in favor of his young Western-educated son, uh, was creating a government to be approved by the legislature, and it would be a national assembly that had two houses. The upper house would be uh, reserved for a certain number of religious and a certain number of old business, powerful families. The second house was going to be elected by the people, and this would be the first time that the people of Bhutan were able to vote. So we were there in the excitement of the build-up to the election, and also the, we were able to tour the National Assembly, which was being readied for the first Congress to take place there. The king also had five wives. He married the woman of his choice, and she had four sisters, and she didn't want to be away from her sisters, so he also married each of the four sisters. So he had five wives who were sisters, who got or everybody apparently got along, and each of the wives had a different foundation or charity that they were involved in to better and modernize the activities in the country. Each one had their own museum. One was the Museum of Science, one was the Museum of Art, one was the Museum of Handicraft and Local Art. And one day, on our way between Paro and Timpu, we stopped off and we were able to take a long walk 
for the rice paddies. But that means that you walked on a dirt mound, which was about a foot wide and 18 inches deep, between the rice paddies that were filled with water and rice. It was interesting. <laughs> we tried not to fall in the rice paddies, uh, but we had a great time, and we saw the people out in the paddies and people just performing everyday activities uh, in a beautiful setting, lovely weather, blue skies, high in the mountains. Uh, the one thing I regretted is that we weren't able to go all the way to the east and south of Bhutan because although they have the mountains and snow and they have winter trekking and, and skiing, they also have um, forests, rainforests, and tropical fruits and flowers in another part of Bhutan. So it, it may be a small country, but it does uh, range over several distinct different kinds of uh, weathers. Uh, at the end of our trip, uh, we wound up in Timpu, and they had been talking about it all along where we were going to eat in Timpu, because we had been eating uh, the, the food of the Bhutanese people anywhere we went, just as we had in Tibet. And there was a pizza place in Timpu that we were going to specially. Now, we were a little skeptical of what kind of pizza we were going to get in uh, Bhutan, but it turned out that it was a fabulous pizza place that had 22 different kinds of pizza, and between us, we had tasted all of them. Um, and it was a wonderful respite and a kind of a memory of home while away in a foreign land. We visited monasteries, but we also visited small temples that were home to just a family or a family of monks, and they maintained it and pr did all of the daily blessings and welcomed foreigners and explained um, what was special about their uh, temple, and they were all very well maintained. Now, an overview of Bhutan. Uh, Bhutan ha is one ethnicity, one religion, Buddhism, one set of public schools, a, a very homogeneous community. And that's why it was easy for the former king to educate and establish and develop a new government and have everyone be excited about it. Uh, one point I would make is that uh, there's universal education and there's about 98 percent literacy in the country. There's also 98 percent voting. Uh, and if you qualify as an academic student and apply to go to college, you uh, have to go outside of Bhutan. Many go to India, England, France, the United States, and the government pays. Now, today, they were, are building colleges and universities to take over, but they also have an educated population coming back from overseas. Contrary to what other countries have, when they, kids leave to go to college and university in other countries, a very large percentage don't come back. In Bhutan, 85% of those students who study abroad come back. I think it says something about the commonality of the culture and how people are happy to come home, and that in this development toward a Western style of life, there are jobs that will utilize their skills in a way to benefit not only themselves, but their country. We hope we have opened your mind 
to this hidden gem on the edge of the Himalayas. The unique ideas that guide Bhutan, like slow pace and national focus on mindful living, have kept that small nation well-rounded and in many ways may not be a bad guide for other countries around the world to study in order to become better global citizens. This has been another episode from the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Arts podcast series. I'm Rudy Basich. For now, Tashi Delek.